I bring absolutely nothing to the table by which God should save me. But Jesus Christ died for me and he gifted all of his perfection to me. And because I believe that, the, the doors to salvation, the doors to the mansion of paradise are nailed open. Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to encouraging words from Pastor James, bringing you truth and peace through God's word. In this episode, we talk about righteousness, that is, being perfect in God's eyes. Do you know the only way that can happen? Think, evaluate, learn, lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Now here's Pastor James showing us what the Bible says is the righteousness of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The Lord as our righteousness and the one thing needful for all humanity is what we're thinking about here today as we look at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 3. Tonight we're studying verses 21 through 31 and here's what he writes. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is there room for boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is God's word. You know, these opening chapters of Romans, uh, chapters one to three or one to four, it's like, it's like opening up and looking under the hood of a BMW. It's, and you know, it, as far as like what Christianity is, it's so incredibly sophisticated and it's absolutely essential and yet it's probably the most undercomprehended part of the whole vehicle. In other words, everybody knows they need it, everybody knows it's important, but, but the ability to articulate what exactly is going on there is uh, actually quite difficult in some respects. And it's all about, we know, uh, this thing called righteousness. We've said that's like the most commonly used important word in the book of Romans, uh, the word righteousness. Uh, it, it, you know, I think it's possible to be a Christian and not fully understand exactly what righteousness, like how to articulate it. On the other hand, I don't know that it's possible to be a Christian uh, to understand Christianity without understanding what righteousness is. Uh, because this is the thing that the world primarily misses. 
the, the pagan world, we think that, okay, well, they don't understand like morality and stuff like that. Well, yeah, they have mis, misguidance about morality, but the primary thing the pagan world is missing is righteousness. And the thing the religious world misses, because the religious world by and large gets a lot of aspects of morality correctly, but the thing that uh, the religious world is primarily missing is this idea of righteousness. Um, the beautiful, complex, foreign engine of Christianity is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes in the gospel. The second half of the gospel, the first half is the forgiveness of sins. The second half is this thing, the gift, or theologians would call it the imputation of righteousness that comes freely through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we want to maybe today more than we've ever done before, have a thorough explanation of and study of today. Uh, and we're going to look at it and divide it into these three parts. We're going to look at righteousness of the gospel. What is it? How do we get it? And what do we do with it? Okay? Righteousness. What is it? The righteousness of God. If it's one of the most important things in Christianity. How do we receive it? And if we know we have received it, what on earth are we supposed to do with it? How does it change our lives? Okay? First of all, what is it? And for this definition, I lean on... Best definition I've ever heard of it uh, is given to me, you know, Tim, Tim Keller has written down, he describes righteousness as a validating performance track record that opens doors, which is a great explanation. A validating performance track record that opens doors for you. It's a resume that grants acceptance. So a lot of you, for instance, I know are currently applying for jobs. You're looking for a new employment. And so what do you do when you're looking for new employment? Well, you go and you get all of your former employment history together and you get it together in this thing called a resume and you submit it. And uh, you, you, on it, you have a list of referrals and contacts. You know, that you, you, it's statements of other people who are saying that your prior track record is admirable in your performance. And then what you got to do is you got to go and do an interview before the person. And they're going to see whether or not they should open up the door and let you in. Because they want to see if you are worthy, if you are deserving, if you are, quote unquote, right for that position. See, all hiring works that way. All schools work that way, at least admissions. Uh, Aid has been in a graduate program for about a year now, but before she got into that program, what did she have to do? She had to get all the written transcripts from every academic institution that she's been to in prior years that is relevant, and she has to get, again, letters of recommendation from professors along the way that says, says that she can handle the work, and then she's got to sit before an interview panel and uh, they will you know, give her a ton of questions by which they are saying, should we open this door for you or not? Are you right for this program? All jobs work this way, all schools this way work this way because all of life works that way. Uh, I don't mean to freak some of you out, but your dating life works that way. Whether you realize it or not, you are auditioning. That's, what you, that's why you shower beforehand. That's why you do your hair. You're sprucing up your resume. And, uh, you know, you, you want to make a good impression and a favorable impression. And uh, that's why you, you, I mean, you guys, when you go to pick up a girl and you take her out for the first time on the first date and you clean all the garbage out of the doors that piles up prior, you know, that compartment alongside your door, because you don't necessarily want her to know on the first date the insane amount of Pop-Tarts that you routinely consume while you're driving around town. And like, no, so what are you doing? You're lying on your resume. You don't want her to know the truth at that point, right? And ladies, you know, guys absolutely do this. 
Uh, ladies do this too. It's called Spanx. I don't know if you know what Spanx are, but uh, you, it's, it's, it's the number one deceitful piece of clothing by which you put it on and you say, no, I don't look like this. I look, I look like this. <laughs> and it's, it's white out on your resume that says, no, I, this is not what I am. This is what I am. And we do this in all of life. The way you look, the way you dress, the way your breath smells, your job, your income, your stories, your apartment, your friends. Every time you're dating, you're auditioning. Is this the right person for me? It's constant auditioning. It's because dating life works that way, uh, jobs work that way, schools work that way. Every time you go home and visit your parents and they ask you questions about your life, it works that way. All social media absolutely works this way and it's one of the reasons why you're constantly anxious. Because you know that the next tryout and the next casting call and the next audition in your life is right around the corner the next interaction that you have. And you're afraid you're gonna to have to lie. And you feel like a lot of times you're living your life sort of as a lie. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating to me that uh, our society has sort of systematically tried to get rid of words like sin over the past 30, 40, 50 years. It's primarily been driven through like academia and philosophy and psychology and we should get rid of the word sin because sometimes people use the word sin to hurt people. And so pretty successfully, we sort of have gotten the word sin out of the cultural vernacular. And I'll tell you what, I don't have any study that supports this, but I do think it has caused people to, in some respects to feel less guilt. I'm absolutely convinced that a lot of young adults, for instance, today do things that 30, 40 years ago, somebody their age, they might feel guilty as a result of doing that, but they don't necessarily feel the emotion of guilt today. And yet, you know what has happened? Even though, as the word guilt, and or the feeling of guilt, and as the word sin has sort of gone down in society, you know what has absolutely risen? Uh, I, I do know this empirically, the prevalence of anxiety amongst young people. It's like God has literally baked it into the culture and says, okay, go ahead, try to take away an understanding of wrongdoing. You know what you're gonna be left with? You're still going to struggle with feelings of not being good enough. You're still going to struggle with feelings of not being quote unquote right. See, that's all of life. Constant auditions, the need for a positive verdict that comes from outside of you, the thirsting for righteousness, that's the way life works. And so naturally, most humanity assumes that must be the way that if God exists, that must be the way that he works too. Of course, he must require some moral and spiritual track record of performance in order for me or anybody else to be acceptable to him, right? Yes and no. God is a holy God that does expect perfection. He created humanity for perfection. And so he doesn't water down his standard. It's, it's one of the reasons why in the Old Testament, as you go through all the sacrificial system, uh, you know how they describe all the sacrifices, irrespective of what you know, animal it is or what specific kind of sacrifice uh, it is. Any atoning sacrifice, the quality of it is that it is unblemished. You know, Because it's not just enough to make a sacrifice that sacrifice has to have some kind of goodness inherently about it that can be credited to somebody else. Now, so yes, does God demand a perfect track record? Absolutely, he has to because he's a holy God. The kicker, however, is that he doesn't demand it from you any longer because he accepts a track record of perfect righteousness from Jesus Christ 
in your place. Uh, see, God is, he, he's both honest enough to know that you cannot produce the righteousness required to be with him on your own, but he's, he doesn't stop there. He's loving and he's generous enough to gift to us a righteousness that comes as a gift through Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul in this section says, Uh, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Why does he say, but now apart from the law? But now apart from, it means up until this point in world history, everybody assumed that if you were going to gain a righteousness of any sort, righteousness before God, righteousness before the world, righteousness in your relationships, if you get right with anybody, it comes through your own performance track record. And after Jesus Christ, Every kind of righteousness before every system of thought, every worldview, every man-made religion, every relationship you have, if you're going to get right with somebody, it is going to come through a performance track record. But now, what's the but now? When Jesus Christ shows up, you can become right with God apart from your own performance, apart from the track record of the law. Uh, See, inherently flawed humans simply cannot produce the righteousness that God's law requires. And so we have to receive any kind of perfection apart from the law. Now, interestingly, even though humanity knows that, we know we lack the righteousness that God requires intuitively, religious people and non-religious people still try to get it apart from the law differently, even apart from Jesus. So religious people, the way they try to gain righteousness before God is they know, well, I can't maybe keep all of God's laws perfectly, his perfect moral law, but maybe I can keep them proportionately better than other people. And so as long as I am relatively better in keeping the law, maybe that makes me better. Or what religious people love to do also is, we talked about this a little bit last week, they love to make up their own man-made laws. Laws that God himself doesn't actually give, but they make up for themselves. And it's laws about to be a really godly person. You have to look this way, talk this way, dress this way, worship this way. And anybody who doesn't do it the way that I do it cannot make themselves right with God. See, that's self-righteousness. Religious people love that kind of stuff. Non-religious people are trying to make themselves righteous too, but it's not through moral performance. Rather, it's through excelling in a specific area that they deem Uh, worthy of forming their identity, you know, a niche area that they think gives them value and purpose and meaning and that sort of thing in life. And I'll I'll spare you the quotes tonight, but in the past, you know, I love to get out quotes of people who are at the absolute top of the field, but they're essentially paranoid of what would happen if they were no longer at the top of the field. And at some point, you will no longer be at the top of your field. And so I have quotes by, you know, Sidney Pollock and Madonna and Tiger Woods and Ronda Rousey and John D. Rockefeller. And it all, it all indicates that they have a pathology of success. I need to be really good at this in order to be able to look in the mirror and think I am a lovable, worthwhile, meaningful person. That's performance-based righteousness. Religious people are doing it. Non-religious people are doing it. And the Apostle Paul is saying, the only righteousness that you can have that will actually save you is the goodness of Jesus Christ. Gifted. See, Christian righteousness, that which saves, is when we say, soberly, I bring absolutely nothing to the table by which God should save me. But Jesus Christ died for me and he gifted all of his perfection to me And because I believe that, 
the, the doors to salvation, the doors to the mansion of paradise are nailed open for me through not my goodness, but through Christ's goodness. See? That's the righteousness of Christianity. Now, how do we get it? Um, there's two parts to this concept. Uh, the, the big word here, another kind of churchy word, is the word justification. And basically, interestingly, in Greek, justification and righteousness are the same basic root word, same basic concept. It means, you know this, anybody who's ever used a word doc knows what justified means. When you just click that button and justify something, it makes everything level and even. It makes it right-angled, right? To justify something is to make it right. So, uh, how do we become, what's the process by which we become right with God? There's two steps and two parts to it. Now, theologians would call it objective justification and subjective justification. The two pieces, or the words that you might be a little more familiar with, that are still kind of churchy words, are redemption and faith. At least they're similar concepts. We're going to unpack both of them here for a second. Objective justification, what exactly is this? Um, well, Paul says in verse 24, all are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What is redemption? Redemption, again, kind of a churchy word there too. Although some people, depending on what you do and uh, you know, your background, you might know what redeem means. I know what redeem means going back to my childhood because when I was little, I lived uh, right outside and right next to a high school football field. And there were games, you know, during the fall on Friday nights. And what I would do on Saturday mornings is I would go out onto the football field and underneath the bleachers and I would take a bag with me and I would grab all these soda cans and all the soda bottles that I could, put them in a bag and take, I, yeah, I know it sounds like I was a little, just a, a little 10-year-old, you know, hobo walking around with this bag and stuff like that. But I would, I would take them to the grocery store and that was good money, you know, because there's a 10-cent deposit. In other words, because this is the way that Michigan incentivized uh, recycling, they couldn't get people to recycle just on their own. So they incentivized it monetarily. And therefore, when you are going to purchase a 12 pack of Diet Coke, you don't pay $4 for that 12 pack. You know what you pay? Five twenty, because you have to purchase each bottle and each can individually too. And the understanding is that when you take those bottles, if you're responsible with them, you're going to take them back to the grocery store and they, the grocery store in the state, will buy them back. And emblazoned on the top of every soda can in Michigan growing up, as far as I remember, was the, the phrase, redeem, 10 cents. That's what redemption is. So why does the Bible use the word redeem to describe us? What Jesus accomplishes at the cross? It's because he's buying us back. Jesus pours out his life, he pours out his blood, he pours out himself at tremendous cost to himself. He repurchases us. See, we, we belonged to God. Humanity was created by God, it was created for God, and we belonged to God, but we became lost to the world. We became lost to our own sins, and therefore we needed to be at a great cost and the cost of God's own son. We needed to be purchased back to God. That's what the shedding of blood is all about. It's the most costly substance imaginable. And who does God do this for? How much, how much life is Jesus willing to pour out? Who does his blood actually all cover? Who does it say? Which segment of humanity does it cover? All are justified freely. All, every last person. 
Jesus pays for the sins of, and therefore if Jesus paid for the sins of everybody, every last person, all should end up eternally in heaven, right? Well, no. Well, why not? If he's paid for the sins of everybody, it's because God, who respects the integrity of human volition, doesn't force us to spend our time with him. He knows that forced love isn't actually true love. And so therefore God doesn't force his love and he doesn't force his presence in our life. He wants it, he welcomes it, he invites it, but he doesn't force us. So it's kind of like if I were tonight to write each of you a check for a million dollars, um, some of you might take that. Well, you know, it's the weekend, so you can't cash it. I'll, I'll post date it and stuff like that probably until the next pay period. But you take it and then, you know, a Monday, you'll be running into the bank and you'll want to cash that check and uh, you'll say, thank you. This is my answer to all my prayers. This is the answer to many struggles. I needed this. Thank you. You're just grateful for it and you live in this kind of ridiculous gratitude for it. Others of you might not cash the check. Well, why wouldn't somebody cash a check for a million dollars? Some of you might say, well, you know, I've been to his house. I've, I've, I've driven in his car. He ain't got a million dollars and certainly not for every one of us. In other words, you doubt my capacity to bless you. You doubt the power of my goodness to you. So you might choose not to cash the check. Others of you might say, who does he think he is? I'm not a charity case. I don't need his handouts and I can take care of myself. And therefore you choose not to cash the check on the own, on, I guess on your basis of pride. Your choice. Somebody else might, you know, kind of carelessly miss, some of you aren't great at putting things in the right spots and keeping them and find, you lose your keys every other, you know, and uh, even important things, but you might misplace the check and you're kind of careless with it and you got distracted by life and therefore you don't benefit from the check either. So you have a, a group of people who might not make good, might not cash, might not receive the blessings of the, the check for their own personal reasons, reasons of personal distraction with the busyness of life, reasons for personal pride and thinking I can take care of myself, reasons for uh, doubting the goodness of the one who's trying to give the gift. The one accusation that you cannot bring to me at that point is that I was not generous to you. So what does it mean that Jesus seeks to justify all mankind but that all mankind is not justified? Well, Jesus doesn't force it. Those who receive the blessings of his goodness, those who receive the blessings of the cross, those are those who have cashed the check. Those who have received it as a gift. Those who, uh, you know, they have been subjectively just, they've received it by faith. Now, what's faith? The Old Testament Righteousness came by way of obedience. It became by way of behaving. In the New Testament, God says, okay, now you've learned you can't earn righteousness on your own. The, way you're only, the only way you're going to get righteousness is not by behaving, but by believing. I'll make it easier. So what does that mean? What is, what is faith? Well, it's more than just kind of an intellectual assent that the stuff about God is true. Aid and I are, have had a couple conversations about this recently with friends and acquaintances of people that we, they would self-identify it probably as Christians for a variety of different factors and yet our overall evaluation of whether or not the individuals are Christians, like, so you don't just want to write them off if they're labeling as Christian but they might not actually be a Christian and so we're trying to figure out how do you finesse this and how do you have this conversation with people that, uh, uh, kind of positively might have them question their own sincerity of their beliefs. 
So, um, in other words, faith is not simply understanding that God exists in general. Faith is not even personally acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know what the Bible says? James, the apostle, in chapter two of his epistle says, the demons do all that. The demons know exactly who God is. They doubt his existence less than humanity does. The demons know that Jesus is the son of God and savior of the world. They identify him much better than humans tend to do that, and yet they're still not saved. That must mean faith is more than just intellectual assent and agreement about who Jesus is. Furthermore, Saving faith is also not simply trying hard to obey God's commands and feeling bad when you break God's commands. Because the Pharisees were awesome at that. They tried very diligently and very hard to keep God's commands and they really flogged themselves and beat themselves up whenever they did poorly and, and, and made mistakes against the law. That doesn't make you a Christian either. Saving faith is a functional trust that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. Trust functional trust that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. To push the analogy earlier from check, uh, cashing the check, it's what you bank on in life. What you really have faith in is ultimately what you're banking on in life and for life. In other words, complete trust in the gift of Jesus Christ is, Jesus Christ's gifted, imputed righteousness means that if you were someday to stand on the threshold of heaven, and let's say today you died and you were standing on the threshold of heaven, I'm not saying it works like this, but just as a thought experiment. Say today you were standing on the threshold of heaven and somebody asked, why should you be let in? Don't take the bait if somebody else tries to say, well, you should be let in because you are proportionately better than much of mankind, your behavior is proportionately better than most others and your doctrine is proportionately righter and your life is proportionately purer and your mouth is proportionately cleaner and your deeds are proportionately a little bit better and your work is proportionately a little more vigorous and harder. Uh, don't take that, it's none of that. If somebody asks you, why do you deserve to be let in through the gates of heaven? The appropriate response is, I don't. I do not deserve that at all. But Jesus Christ died on the cross and gifted me his perfection. And when he did that, he nailed the doors of heaven open for me. So move over, I'm coming in. See? It's not a general belief in God's, God or God's goodness. And it is certainly not a specific belief in your own personal goodness. It is a specific belief in the goodness, the righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ. Um, I've been using several new commentaries that I have uh, written by a Welsh minister in the 20th century named Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote some wonderful commentaries on Romans and he nailed, I think, this particular section uh, in one of his commentaries where he writes, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself. And he's no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything that he once was. And he does not look at what he is now. And he doesn't even look at what he hopes to be. He says he looks, the man with faith looks entirely at the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And he rests on that alone. See, that's the righteousness of Christ, totally lost in what Jesus did for you, not what you do. 
Uh, now, if you have the righteousness of Christ, what, is, what do you do with it in your life? Once you are absolutely certain Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, I will live forever with him. What does that mean in the 70, 80 years that I might get here on earth? I'm gonna give you four brief application points and, and then we're all set here tonight. Look at what he says, verse 31. Paul says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all, rather we uphold the law. So there's the first thing. If you have the righteousness of Christ, there becomes a desire to uphold the law. Now there might be a temptation to say, if, if Jesus has paid for all of my infractions against the law, all of my broken commandments, there may, maybe the law doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Maybe it doesn't need to mean anything. And in one sense, it doesn't. It doesn't in the sense of attempting to earn your salvation through the law because your salvation has already been earned through Jesus Christ and gifted to you. So it doesn't matter in that way. On the other hand, the law is still good. Even though you don't use it to earn salvation, it's still good. See, there's a billion books out there and there's a billion podcasts out there right now that are trying to teach you the pathway to wellness and the good life and overall balance and success in life. And one of them is actually completely right. The Bible is an operator's manual for how humans work and therefore not only is studying and following it wise, but submitting to the Bible is also the ideal way to thank Jesus for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, say? So first thing you do with the law or with, with Christ's righteousness is you seek to uphold the law. The second thing you do is praise God. I can't tell you how many times I've worked with people who, Christians, who when they make a mistake, um, their natural instinct is to simply try to ratchet up their willpower and say, I'm not gonna do this again. And some of you I know have done this. You've promised to God hundreds of times that you would not do that same thing that you've done and you don't wanna do, but you keep slipping into it for one reason or another. Um, here's the thing, I've, I've never met an, an addict or somebody who was ingrained in bad behavior who kicked the bad behavior simply by ratcheting up their willpower a little bit more. If you're going to overcome, now willpower is good, and boundaries that you put in place in your life that you know, keep you away from temptation are good. But I, I really wish that a lot of people, when you make the same mistake, and, and perhaps make the same mistake uh, again, Instead of just beating yourself up for it repeatedly and trying to prove to God how sorry you are, instead try praising Jesus for still loving you, still accepting you, still forgiving you, despite the fact that you have done this maybe even multiple times. You were never saved by your good behaviors in the first place anyway, so instead of unrelentingly dwelling and lamenting on your bad behaviors and on your weaknesses, try praising Jesus unrelentingly for his unwavering goodness and righteousness to you. See if that's not more effective. Third thing you do if you have righteousness, you uphold the law, you praise God, you focus on others. Maybe the number one sign that somebody is resting in the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given to them is they've stopped worrying about and obsessing about themselves so much. Why? Because if you actually believe that Jesus is going to make good on all of his promises to take care of all of your needs in life just as he has taken care of your greatest need, then you don't have to worry about yourself anymore. And if you stop worrying about yourself, that frees up a ton of time and a ton of energy and a ton of money to focus on being a blessing to the difficulties that others may face in their lives. Last thing, if you have the righteousness of Christ, embrace your imperfection. 
Now, as pastor, are you saying that I should become okay with all of my sins? Well, not exactly, but I would like you to, some of you, really need to start perhaps working on this mantra. The only thing perfect in my life is my Savior. The only thing that will ever be perfect about me, this side of heaven, is my Savior. The only perfect relationship I'm ever going to have here on earth is with my Savior. The only person that I can count on to never fail me in any way, shape, or form in this life is my Savior. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just be totally happy for your friend when she gets a great relationship and maybe she even gets engaged and you, didn't, you were just happy for her? And you didn't have any twinge of jealousy like, oh, I wish my life was like that. My life is so terrible. My life is so imperfect. Wouldn't it be nice if when one of your colleagues got a promotion at work, you could experience genuine joy for them instead of just kind of resenting that they got something that maybe you would have liked? Wouldn't it be nice if you didn't feel the need, you could surrender the, the need to control everyone and everything and every circumstance in your life that you thought had to go exactly the way you think it needs to go in order for you to be okay. Wouldn't it be nice to let go of that? In this life, it won't be completely okay. Not for long. Uh, your relationships... Eventually, somebody you love is going to pass on. Uh, your, your, your health, eventually that's going to go away. Your career, eventually you will start to, your skills will diminish. And if you pretend like they don't, it starts to get embarrassing after a while. It, it will never be completely right in this life, this side of heaven. But you can be if you realize that the only thing you truly need is the righteousness of Christ and that gets you through all of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, tonight what we want to confess as we humble ourselves is we want to confess this struggle for control over our lives, the things that we think we need uh, that are maybe good things and are maybe blessings and are maybe, but they're not God. And it actually ruins us. It ruins our spiritual welfare. It ruins our relationships. It ruins our attitude when we think we need them. The one thing we need to be right, Jesus, is you. Let us praise you in that. And if anything should tempt us to pull away from worshiping and praising in your righteousness, then, then take all those things away so that we're left holding nothing but you. May it be to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about Tell, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.